I shared with you a few weeks ago that October is my absolute favorite month of the year. I don't know what it is, but as I've gotten older, uh, I've become more of, I think the technical term is called a leaf peeper, right? And so I love the colors that fall, uh, that's around. Uh, I love the uh, weather that's cool out. I love me some pumpkin cookies, right, with the icing on the top. And I'll told you as well that I love scary movie marathons. How many of you have movies that no matter how many times they're on, you're going to watch them? You've seen them a hundred times, right? Some of those. So uh, when Jaws comes on, uh, I'm going to watch it. Someone said, what's your favorite one? Jaws one, two, or three? And my answer is yes. Amen. Yes and amen. Right? I don't want to be legalistic. If you've never seen the movie Hoosiers, you're not going to heaven. I've watched that movie 40, 50 times. That's my absolute favorite movie in the whole world, but when scary movies come on, uh, one of the movies that I've watched uh, multiple times, even though I've seen it, is a movie called I Know What You Did Last Summer. Who's seen that movie? I know what you did. Yeah, a couple of you are like, I only watch Christian movies. Anyway, so <laughs> if you've not seen it, <laughs> we only watch Left Behind at our house during October. <laughs> Whatever. If you, <laughs> that wasn't my notes, that was a little. I've got about two Diet Mountain Dews in me already. I'm just... Well, if you've not seen it, here's the plot. Some kids are out at summer break, and they're out partying, and they're out driving recklessly in the, in the middle of the night. They're out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, they're driving near this cliff, this canyon, and they hit a pedestrian out in the street. And so uh, they realize that if we stop and call the police, they're going to come. They're going to find out we're drinking, and we're going to get DUI. We're going to get charged with manslaughter. And so what they instead choose to do is to get this body and throw it over the cliff. And they get back in the car and they drive away and they say, hey, let's make a pact. We're never going to talk about this again. And since we're out in the middle of night, in the middle of nowhere, that they thought, hey, we've gotten away with this. As long as we don't speak about this, we're scot-free. And so we're just never going to speak about that, this thing. So it goes on, the summer ends, and then school starts back up and they see each other at school. And one by one, they start getting these messages in random ways, in random places, and the message is simply this, I know what you did last summer. And there's a scary guy, his name is just called uh, the Fisherman, he's got this, you know, wharf on, this kind of raincoat, he's got a hook on there, and he goes after these kids one by one, and is writing these messages, I know what you did last summer. Now, full disclosure, first time I saw that movie, I screamed like a second grade girl, like it was scary, Right? But you know what scary thought in real life? The idea that someone would in fact keep a record of everything wrong that we have done and often would uh, send us reminders and constantly tell us, uh, I know what you did and you know what you did too. Now unfortunately, for many people, that person is real. And his name is Mr. Guilt. Between Satan, who's the accuser of the brothers on the outside, and our own internal guilt, breaking free from the grip of guilt can often be an incredibly tall task. But thankfully, the only one who has a record of our deeds is the same one who sent his son to die on behalf of all of our sins and provide forgiveness through the work of the cross, praise God. And so that's the good news. But even though we can declare that to be true... But we can also live in bondage to guilt despite all the gospel truth. And so let me just say this on the front end. Uh, there's so much hope for us today. 
that for all the, the pain of guilt you walked in with this morning, uh, you can be completely removed if you'll listen and respond by faith to God's word this morning. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn or your devices to Psalm chapter 32 as we step into week two of our Hope series. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to get online and check it out. Some powerful truths we taught last week that there's hope for an anxious heart. And we talked about uh, what the Bible teaches on fear and worry and anxiety and how to battle those from a biblical worldview uh, than doing that. And so before we read the text uh, this morning in Psalm 32, I want to set a little context because the context of this passage gives it some power when the principles that we're going to walk through this morning. So this psalm is what's called a penitential psalm. Uh, it, it means it's a psalm that expresses uh, deep lament and confession of sin uh, due to what the writer has committed. And the human author that God works through in the psalm is none other than King David. Now, if you don't know a lot about the Bible, uh, let me tell you just a little cliff notes about David. David is a guy who uh, God was so, uh, his favor was on so much that at one point in time, uh, David was described as a man after God's own heart in the book of 1 Samuel. God loved him deeply and appointed him to be the leader over his people, the nation of Israel. But then you just flip over one book, and what you find in the book of 2 Samuel is this same David who was just described as a man after God's own heart, who at one point in Scripture is described as the apple of God's eye. That same David in 2 Samuel, uh, we find out, is guilty of adultery and murder. Now, let me tell you why that context is important as we work through this text today. Because there is, guilt can be so strong that there can be a temptation to think, but you don't know what I'm actually guilty of. I've got things in my life I'm deeply ashamed of. I've got things that no one but the Lord knows about, things that I'm going to try and take to my grave if I can. So what I want to encourage you with is that David, if the guy who went from being the apple of God's eye to an adulterous, murdering individual... Uh, can find freedom from guilt, then so can you. And so let's read together Psalm 32. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 7, and then verses 10 and 11 together this morning. Psalm 32, 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Verse 7. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. Skip down to verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. One of the things that we believe when you're interpreting the Bible is we would hold to what's called a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture. And so what that means is historical context is important, but also the, the literary structure of a passage, the very words are inspired, so even the grammatical structure of that passage. And when you observe the structure of this passage, what you see is this, is that this passage starts off 
uh, with descriptions of blessedness, and it is bookended at the end uh, with gladness and rejoicing, shouting for joy uh, at the end of those things. And so the bookends are blessedness in verse 1, and then gladness and uh, shouting for joy uh, in verse uh, 11. But what I want you to notice is the verses in between are all about confession uh, and repentance. And remember the context of this passage. This is David who's talking about being blessed. This is David, the uh, murdering adulterer, uh, who's talking about receiving shouts of joy, uh, ending that passage. And what we would think is, uh, how can a person be free from guilt when they've done such unspeakable things? I mean, doesn't he deserve to spend the rest of his life paying for his sins? Uh, shouldn't David uh, be miserable for the rest of his life? I mean, we're not talking about stealing a, a, an extra chocolate milk in the lunch line. Some of you know what you did, right? I mean, we're talking about serious uh, sins here. And so in this passage, what you see is, hey, there's blessedness, right? And then there's a shouting for joy. And those two bookends, the bridge to go from one to the other is confession and repentance, that's the bridge. That's why the passage is structured this way. And so these two bookends, the bridge between those two is confession uh, and repentance. So, so what we want to see as we're working through this text is that through Christ's finished work on the cross, our guilt is completely forgiven and we can be glad. We can rejoice and shout for joy as a result of that. And let me tell you why that's good news practically. Psychiatrists and doctors say that uh, unresolved guilt is one of the leading causes of uh, things that we would put on the banner of mental illness and even uh, suicide. Well, one researcher found in their study that uh, the average person uh, spends up to two hours per day battling feelings of guilt. And some of you may be thinking, that's a light day, right? It's a real struggle is what research uh, tells us. And last week we talked about uh, fear. And we said, hey, uh, sometimes fear is a God-ordained. God's hardwired us to experience fear. Sometimes fear is a godly thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, but when it comes to, to guilt, uh, sometimes that's, uh, we don't uh, always think of it the same way. Sometimes in our current uh, Christian culture, we think that uh, guilt has no place for any kind of teaching that guilt is the tool of legalistic preaching and, and it can be or or guilt is the opposite of grace and, and you, get, you get the idea of those kind of feelings about guilt but but here's the problem uh, that's not biblical theology uh, there is a good and godly guilt that we should experience that we'll talk about here in just a moment uh, but there's also a real battle against false guilt and false guilt shows up in one of two ways uh, number one, it happens when we still experience guilty feelings after we've already confessed and repented of sin. But yet I, I've confessed that, I've repented that, the Lord knows my heart, I've been grieved by that, but yet I still have this feeling of going on, just feelings of guilt. And here's something I want you to understand. Uh, there is no biblical reason to experience guilt at that point because here's What's important? What's important is not whether or not you feel forgiven. What's important is, in fact, that you've been declared forgiven. And so when we confess our sins, we repent of it. Uh, the Bible says God forgives us, cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And so any residual feelings of that, that's a false guilt. That guilt uh, doesn't even exist anymore. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. And so uh, author John Bunyan uh, battled some terrible feelings of guilt in his time and uh, over sin and, and was sharing that with someone. And they said, hey, John, 
they said, your righteousness is in heaven. So stop looking at your own life and look at the life of Jesus. And so what he's telling was, hey, John, uh, you're, you're still battling this. You still feel this. You want to, have I done enough? Have I been grieved enough? Have I turned away from that sin enough? He said, listen, that, that whether you feel forgiven or not is irrelevant because your righteousness is in heaven where Jesus is, and he's already declared you to be righteousness. So quit looking at your sin that's been forgiven and start looking at Jesus. Praise God. And so it doesn't matter if you feel forgiven. What matters is if you've been declared to be forgiven uh, in God's account. But, so false guilt can happen. I've confessed it. I've repented of it. But I still want to go back and wrestle around with it. That's a false guilt. If you've confessed it, repented of it, uh, you've been forgiven of it. Okay? But then also, uh, there's another way that false guilt uh, can be experienced. All right? So if you're listening, say amen. Repentance is turning away from specific sin and specific sin patterns. It's not general. Uh, it's specific. And so if there's just this low kind of grade background of your life, just always kind of there, always creeping up on your shoulder, you know what you did, you don't deserve forgiveness, blah, blah, you don't love Jesus, all those kinds of things. But, but you search your heart, ask the Spirit of God to search your heart. You go to other people and say, hey, is there any sin patterns I've been blinded to that you see in my life? And there's nothing specific that either someone shares with you or the Spirit of God draws out of you. You just feel guilty in general. That's often false guilt because here's why. Repentance is always away from specific sins, not just sin in general. God wants to lead us away from fill-in-the-blank sin so that we can turn and pursue Jesus again. And so, false guilt can creep up in our lives. We've confessed it, but I still feel guilty. That's false guilt. Uh, there's nothing specific that the Spirit of God's leading me away from to repent of. Uh, that can be false guilt as well. And so we just come to the place where we say, hey, I feel this way. But despite what I feel, I'm going to live by faith out of the truth of 1 John 1, 9, no matter how I feel, because it declares, if conditional, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, listen to the truth of that verse. The promise that if we confess, contingent, not on our, uh, you know, feelings or those kind of things. The promise is contingent on his faithfulness and his being just in character. So all of our forgiveness doesn't hinge on us. It hinges on the character of God. And listen, the character of God has yet to fail. And so it doesn't matter how you feel. What matters is what God has declared to be true because the forgiveness hinges on his justice and his faithfulness in our lives so but there's also an appropriate guilt the bible talks about in second corinthians chapter 7 that foundational passage on repentance it talks about a godly sorrow that leads to life and so this whole teaching and kind of that seeker christian movement we shouldn't make people feel guilty we should all those kind of things listen uh, the spirit of god lives inside of us and here's what we know about the spirit of god the spirit of god uh, comforts he guides, he instructs or illuminates our minds to truth, but the Spirit of God also convicts. And so let me bring back a word the old timers uh, used to talk about. Anybody remember the word conviction? Just raise your hand. Hey, that conviction is God's mercy made tangible in our lives. 
The Bible says it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. You know what precedes repentance? Confession over sin. The word confess means to agree. You know what precedes confession? Conviction. Conviction is God's mercy made tangible. It's God saying, I love you too much to leave you in sinful patterns because I want you to listen to this closely, all right? Lots of people say, hey, the most miserable people in the world are those who are living without Jesus Christ. That's not true. You know what we say about sin all the time here? If When you sin, if it's not fun, you're doing it wrong. Right? It's meant to be pleasing to the flesh. No. The most miserable people in the world are those who are genuinely saved, but they're living like an unsaved person. Why? Because the Spirit of God is inside of them, convicting them over their sin, and that is God's good gift of mercy in our lives. And so there's a good and godly guilt. The Holy Spirit convicts us so we can turn away from sin uh, and turn towards Jesus Christ. I want you to think about it this way. The Holy Spirit is to our inner man what pain is to the outer man. It's a warning that we need to let go. The Holy Spirit is to our inner man uh, what, what you would experience the pain of grabbing a hot pan on the oven. And when you grab a hot pan, it hurts, right? That's pain. What, what's that hurt telling you? Uh, let go because you're going to get burned. That's what the Holy Spirit is. Hey, you're laying a hold of something that you weren't meant to lay a hold of. And if you don't let go of that, whatever that sin is, uh, you're going to get burned. That's exactly how the Spirit of God works. So that is a good and godly gift. It is a gift of his mercy in our lives. And so not all guilt is bad. And I want you to think of it this way. Uh, true guilt propels us towards Jesus Christ. False guilt drives us away from Jesus Christ, causing us to forget the work of the cross. In verses 1 and 2, we get a clear picture of the type of things that should produce this good guilt within us. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. What's he say? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, here's the reality. Everybody on the planet has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3 talks about Romans 3 says there is none righteous, no, not one. And so because of that truth, everybody on the world experiences some form of guilt. And good guilt comes when we're guilty over sin. And he lists uh, four kind of descriptive words here uh, about sin just in verses 1 and 2. He says, hey, if these things are, uh, you're guilty of these things, that's a good guilt. It's called conviction. So what's he say? He talks about transgression. That's rebellion, refusing to submit to rightful authority. He uses the word uh, sin. Uh, sin means to miss the mark that God has intended. He, he talks about iniquity. That's a word derived from a word that means bent or twisted. It's the nuance of kind of perverting that which is right. So in other words, it's kind of when you say, well, I, don't, I don't know this is totally wrong, where you just kind of bend that thing, whatever it is. He says that's, that's a form of um, iniquity. And then lastly, it's deceit. That's deliberate cover-up, falsehood, uh, hypocrisy. Trying to present a false front so you look good, even when we know that you're not, you're guilty of sin. And so here's the reality. All sin ultimately is against God in nature. Yes, you can sin against other people, but ultimately all sin is against God uh, in nature. And so these types of sins in verses 1 and 2 are sins against God. And so uh, they should bring God wrought conviction into our lives. Psalm 51 also, David writes, listen to what he said. He said, against you, 
You only, he's talking to God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So because we've all sinned, and because sin, these types of sin, are ultimately against God, we're all going to experience feelings of guilt, and that is a good thing. So here's the question. How do we break free from the grip of guilt in our lives? Right? I'm glad you asked. And so the answer is where the answer always is. It's in the text. Okay? So I'm going to show you two things from the text this morning on how to break free from, from guilt. Number one is admit your guilt. Step number one is confession. The word confess in the original language means to agree with God. Now, I, I don't know if it's just me, but, but I could go the rest of my life without seeing another public figure, whether it's an athlete or politician, entertainer, something like that, uh, try to minimize their sin or dismiss their sin or deflect their sin onto someone else, those kinds of things. I could go the rest of my life uh, like that. Here's the problem with that. That's exactly against the counsel of Scripture. That, that desire to, to, to minimize my sin, to, to conceal it, to deflect those things, it's exactly against the counsel of Scripture. And so guess what? It's never going to have a good outcome. This text is so practical. It not only says, hey, here's what you should do to break free from guilt. It says, here's what you should not do. And what you should not do, according to verses 3 and 4, is to keep silent when you sin. Look at verses 3 and 4. What's it say? For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Listen to this imagery. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I love David ends that phrase there with the word selah. That, that means that's a pause is what he's describing. So maybe you thought that was a Christian group. It's not just right. He's saying, just pause and consider what I'm saying here, the weight of what's being said here. He says, hey, when you can, uh, choose to not confess your sin, when you try to conceal your sin or dismiss it or minimize it or deflect it or explain it away, he, he said, this is what's going to happen. Now, I'm going to let you in a little secret. Over the last 21 years, there have been a time or 200 where someone has confessed their sin to me as their pastor. And you know what they often say in those moments? They say, man, I've been holding that in for a long time. It's almost as if a heavy weight has been lifted off my life. Listen, it's not almost as if a heavy weight's been lifted off my life. It's exactly what he says here. He says, for night and day before I confess my sin, verse 4, your hand was heavy upon me. And so that's exactly, when you try to conceal your sin instead of confessing your sin, it will feel like this weight. It will feel as if the hand of God is on you. Why? Because it is. God is pressing down on your life. Why? Because he knows you weren't meant to carry that. Uh, you were to confess that. He says it felt like my bones were wasting away. Remember last week when we talked about anxiety? That man is body and soul, like, like big words, psychosomatic. That what's going on in the inner man can affect the outer man. What's happening in the outer man can, uh, can affect the inner man because we're body and soul. Listen, when it comes to confession of sin and guilt because you won't confess, that's exactly what he's describing there. Remember the stat I gave you earlier? 
that often some of the root causes of some things in mental illness are unconfessed sin. Some of the physical symptoms I'm experiencing in the outer man are because in the inner man I'm trying to conceal my sin instead of confessing my sin. What happens if I do that? Read the text. What's he say? It will feel like God's hand is heavy upon me. It will feel like my bones are wasting away. And so what's he say? He says the answer is to not keep silent. But I want you to understand an important distinction. Our sin separates us relationally from God, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ provides a pathway, the pathway of reconciliation back to God uh, in that relationship for all who repent and believe. Now, at the point of confession, repentance of sin, and receiving Christ, a transactional thing happens according to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, the Bible says we've been adopted into God's family. We have a new last name. And at that point, we have all the rights and inheritance. We're joint heirs with Christ. All the promises of God are available to me. All the resources of heaven are available to me. Because at that point, I've been adopted legally into God's family. Well, here's what's interesting. Uh, In Roman law, once someone was uh, legally adopted into a family, they could never legally be unadopted out of that family. Not only was that Roman law, that's God's spiritual truth as well. Listen to This promise in John 6.37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, listen to this, I will never cast out. What that means is, listen, when your guilt makes you feel like you're not even family, God's family anymore, what he's declared is that grace says, hey, I don't care how you feel, you're still a part of my family. I will never cast you out. Once you've been adopted, you will never be removed from my family. That's what you should live out of because it's what's true despite how guilt makes you feel. Praise God. That verse is so incredible. I want you to do two things. Number one, write down the address of it. John 6, 37. Every time you feel guilty, like, I don't even feel like I'm a Christian, go back and meditate on the truth of that verse and say, hey, despite how guilt makes me feel, I will never be cast out. I'm going to live out of what I know is true as opposed to what guilt makes me afraid might be true. Praise God. I want you to write down where it is so you can meditate on it when guilt begins to overwhelm your life. And the second thing I want you to do to celebrate that truth is to let out a hootie hoo for Jesus. Amen. On the count of three, can we just do that together? One, two, three. A little Pentecostal snuck in with us. Amen. What an incredible truth. That sin does not change the standing of our relationship with God permanently. I will never be cast out, despite what guilt makes me afraid. But it does strain our fellowship with him temporarily until I confess and repent. Look at verse 5, Psalm 32.5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I confessed it. I didn't try and conceal it. Uh, I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. So step one, if you want to be free from guilt, step one is this, uh, go against the natural grain of our hearts, which is to conceal our sin and instead confess our sin. Here's the second step. 
Now, confess your sin. Here's the second step. Uh, forget your guilt. One of my all-time favorite hymns is Digging Up Bones by Randy Travis. Listen to these powerful verses from the book of Second Hesitations. I'm digging up bones. Digging up bones. Exhuming things that's better left alone. I'm resurrecting memories of a love that's dead and gone. Yet a night I'm sitting alone digging up bones. Digging up bones. <laughs> Do you, no, don't, don't, don't. Do you know what you're doing when you're going back and revisiting sin? You've already confessed, repented, been forgiven. You know what you're doing? You're exhuming things that's better left alone. Why? You're actually digging up bones that have been buried under the cross of Calvary. That's exactly what you're doing. He says that when I confess these things, uh, verses 3, 4, and 5a, if you like technical, uh, then beginning in 5b, uh, look what he says, the transactional thing that takes place beginning at the end of verse 5. What's he say? And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice what he didn't say. You will forgive me once I work my way out of this hole. You will keep a record of sin and bring it back up to me. Now, I want you to listen. This is powerful. In verse 5, at the end, when he used the word forgive, literally, it means to bear, to carry off, or to take away a burden. Here's what that means. That when you confess your sins, that God literally bears the weight of those sins, and he carries off or takes away the burden and the guilt of that sin. So, so here's what that means, literally, from the text. When you confess a sin... God extends forgiveness when you still feel guilty after that's already happened. You're feeling guilty for something that's not even there anymore because God has borne the weight of it in forgiveness and he's literally taken away or carried away that burden. So you feel guilty over something that God has carried so far away. It's as far as the east is from the west. And then the language of verses 6 and 7, look what he says. Gospel-centered confession will find its ultimate test of genuineness when the confessor runs towards Jesus. Look at the language used in verses 6 and 7. He says, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. In other words, uh, I'm still going to seek your face in prayer. Instead of turning away from you in guilt and shame, I'm going to seek your face and, and it will be found. You will not hide your face from me. He says the rush of great waters will not reach him. What's that mean? That's a symbol of God's judgment. He says, you won't judge me when I confess my sin. You'll forgive me. And then he says, you're a hiding place for me, refuge. You preserve me from trouble, sustaining grace. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Deliverance from what? Deliverance from the heavy weight of sin and the consequences of it. Listen, stop living in bondage when you've been set free. That sin's not even there anymore once you've confessed it. God has literally borne the weight of it and carried it away. That's what forgiveness means. And so here's what I want you to understand. Some of you are walking around in grave clothes which are not fitting for empty tomb followers of Jesus Christ. Then, he closes out this section with verses 10 11, which there's a warning 
verse 10, and then a promise, verse 11. All right, so, so here's the warning. This is option A. If you choose not to confess and receive forgiveness, right, here's, here's option A. Uh, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Who are the wicked? Those who don't confess their sins, those who continue their sins, those who won't repent of their sins. And so here's the warning. It says, hey, if you want to live that way, uh, then guess what? Um, many are the sorrows of the wicked. You don't have to wonder, how will my life turn out if I don't confess and repent of this? How, listen, sorrow is how your life turns out. But then he says, hey, there's a second option. It's a promise. And, and that's in verse 11. So what's he say? It can be yours instead of many sorrows. What well, can be yours? Be glad in the Lord. Actually, go back to the end of verse 10. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. What am I trusting the Lord for? That he will, in fact, forgive me just as he promised. And then what happens? What's the option? I can be glad in the Lord. I can rejoice. I can shout for joy. All you upright in heart. Now, here's a question. Why in the world would anyone not confess and repent of their sins and not heed the warning that many will be the sorrows of my life? Why in the world don't experience shouts of joy and gladness that's offered in verse 11? Why in the world would people choose that? Why don't people experience that? Why are so many people having so much sorrow over guilt when they could have rejoicing and shouting over forgiveness? Well, two possible reasons. Number one, uh, we minimize our sin. We don't, really, we're not, we don't really confess and repent of it. We just, you know, kind of pray things like, we just minimize it's, you know, well, it wasn't really sin, it was a mistake. Or, or well, I know I sinned. Well, I don't know that I sinned against that person. I just say things that I don't mean to say. We just minimize it. We say things like, God, forgive me if I've sinned. Newsflash, you have. <laughs> you know the best apology? Hey, if, I've, if I hurt your feelings, I'm sorry. You did. Remember what we said about repentance? It's over specific sins the Spirit of God is convicting because he wants us to forsake those specific sins. And so when we're not minimizing our sin, we say things like, God, forgive me for the way I spoke to fill in the blank. I was harsh, it was out of pride, and I spoke to that person in sinful ways. And so use real names and real instances and real sin when you admit your sin to God and you repent of that sin. So sometimes we don't experience the joy and the gladness and, the, and rejoicing because we, we're not really repentant. We just minimize our sin. The second, though, is we minimize our Savior. Now, some of you are hearing all this this morning. And in the back of your mind, go, hey, this all sounds great. Like the theme of my life is guilt. And again, I've got things in my life I'm not proud of. I've got things in my life that no one knows about. And uh, I, I'm gonna, if I can, I'm going to take those things to the grave with me. Because if anyone found out, my goodness, I don't know if there's enough grace to cover the sins that I've committed. Right? So if you're listening, say amen. The Bible says this. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. What does that mean? That the pool of God's forgiving grace has no bottom to it. It's only conditional on your confession and repentance. And then God unleashes a flood of grace that literally has no end. There is no stain you've committed that the blood of Christ cannot wash clean. Where sin is abounded, grace abounds much more. Praise God. And if you'll quit minimizing the saving, forgiving healing, redeeming grace of Jesus Christ in your life, then you can go from sorrow to shouts of joy, gladness. 
And some of you hear that and you, you, just, you just can't get there. Right? I hear you. I hear David's life. Like, I just, you don't know what I've done. If that's you, I just want to imagine a scenario. I want you to imagine this. That Jesus was bodily, physically present in our service today. And I want you to imagine at the end that we had an altar call and it said, hey, you come up and confess your sins to Jesus, literally. He's here today. And you walked up to him and said, I, I, uh, I've, I've done some things that are horrible in my life. Now, under his breath, what he's saying is, I already know, right? I'm God. But upon your confession... He would reach out his nail-scarred hand and place it on your head and say, your sins are forgiven you. Go and sin no more. Now, would you walk away and go, well, I sure don't feel good. You would not. You would walk away rejoicing, shouts of joy, because whether you feel forgiven is irrelevant. Jesus himself has reached out his nail-scarred hand touched your life, and declared you forgiven. Saint, listen to me this morning. That's exactly what happened when you got saved. That's literally exactly what happened. The nail-scarred hand of Jesus Christ has touched into your life and said, I don't care how you feel when you receive me, my child. You have been forgiven. Go and sin no more. And so listen, what should mark your life is not sorrow and guilt. What should mark our lives, if we know Jesus, is shouts of joy. And the question is not if that's true. It is true. That's the gospel. The question is, are you willing to live out of what's been declared true, or are you going to live in bondage to what you're afraid is true? My child, you have been forgiven. Go and sin no more. Let's bow our heads this morning. I want to ask you two questions. Number one. Have you received Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you still trying to fix what's broken between you and God with your good deeds and your holy life and going to church and all those things? Listen, if that's you here, listen this morning. Come to the foot of the cross. Confess your sins to a Savior whose arms are open wide to you who will receive you today by faith. Would you receive Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins? If you have received Christ, you've been walking with the Lord for weeks, months, maybe decades. But guilt is a more consistent theme than joy in your life. If that's true, it's usually tied to some specific things, events, situations in your past. Listen, right now, by faith, would you say, Lord, it doesn't matter how I feel, what matters is what you've declared to be true. The Lord, by faith, this week, help me to live in the freedom of forgiveness. Help me to live out of what you've declared is true instead of being in bondage to what I'm afraid is true through feelings of guilt in my life. Lord, 
Help me to live in the freedom of your forgiveness. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. Would you pray that right now by faith? Would you confess and repent and say, Lord, I've been believing lies. I'm turning away from those lies. I'm embracing the truth of God's word. That if I confess my sins, you're faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive me of all unrighteousness. God, you carried away my sin. It's not even there anymore. Help me to live with that truth this week. Father, we're grateful for your word that, yes, it forgives our past. Yes, it tells us of a home in heaven in the future. But, Lord, it gives us hope in the present. And hope's not a feeling. It's a person. It's Jesus. And so, God, we're grateful because of what Jesus has done for us, we can live free from guilt. Because of what Jesus has done, you've literally carried our sin away. And so, Lord, help us to live this week, not careless or casual about sin, but help us to live free because grace is true and his name is Jesus. And so, Lord, may we live by faith this week in the power Pray in his name because we can. Amen.